Good morning, I'm Rhonda Carlson. Our reading is from Matthew 7. Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father, who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name? And do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. The word of the Lord. We're finishing our series in the Sermon on the Mount. We've been in the Sermon on the Mount the whole summer, sharing that with Church of the Ascension, Dean Miller's church. You heard from Chris Lugo last week. Um, As we get to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the question that um, I think Jesus wants us to ask or us to, to, to question was the title of the book that we were sharing early in the summer called What If Jesus Was Serious About the Sermon on the Mount? I think Jesus is probably pretty easily the most misinterpreted and misapplied person in history, right? I mean, it's, it's, you can't be that powerful, that well-known, that influential without being misapplied and misinterpreted. And we've seen his misinterpretation and misapplication throughout history when people have, in the name of Christianity, done violence and evil. But we've also seen um, how people, at least more modern culture way of approaching it, is to reduce Jesus. We misinterpret Jesus and reduce him to just simply his nice qualities, as we like to interpret them. He was accepting of the sort of people that nobody would accept in that culture. And we take that to mean, I'm free to do whatever I want. I can live whatever life choices I want. And so we, we use Jesus to justify our life. But Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount was, was pretty amazingly powerful and, and authoritative. And he was basically saying, follow me at all costs. And so if you go through the teaching, he does that whole thing where he talks about like adultery and murder. Don't do them. But he pushes it further and says, not only that, don't look at a woman lustfully or a man. Do not even think bad thoughts about somebody else. Think, look down on them. You've already murdered them. He talks about a sort of generosity in the Sermon on the Mount that, uh, that most of us get a little bit nervous about. And he talks about forgiving people who have deeply and harshly offended us. He talks about a radical love. And he talks about being the sort of people who are poor in spirit and willing to be persecuted, which means not being on top. And Jesus said, follow me. 
Towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he actually moves from kind of how to live and all this sort of stuff and into what is actually uh, judgment and warning verses and passages. In, in the section that Chris talked about last week, he talked about the narrow way that leads to eternal life, but the wide road that leads to destruction. Destruction is the word. And then, uh, you know, the tree that doesn't bear fruit should be cut down and thrown into the fire. In our passage today, it was Jesus saying to people who thought they were like in with him, Jesus says, I never knew you. Depart from me. And then the house built on the sand, when the storms come, it falls, and great was the fall of it. In verse 22, early on in our reading today, Jesus says, on that day, many will come to me and say, Lord, Lord. That phrase, on that day, was a Hebrew phrase, a Hebrew Old Testament phrase for the day of judgment. So Jesus is talking here at the end of the Sermon on the Mount about eternal life versus eternal death. And it's a warning. And it's a warning that would have been really hard for his listeners to hear. Because they were Jewish people in the first century. And Jewish people in the first century took their faith, their religion, and their morality very seriously. One commentator wrote this. He said, most, Jesus people, most Jewish people in Jesus' day were religious. They respected God, keeping his commandments, and, and keeping his commandments were important parts of their culture. Yet Jesus declared that most people were lost. Most people in Jesus' day were very good. They believed in God, they tried to follow his commandments, and Jesus says, few are those who get in. In other words, the end of the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus kind of landing the plane saying, be aware, be warned, those of you who want to be my disciples. If you call yourself a Christian, or if you think, I'm probably okay, I'm a pretty good person, Jesus says, you must do what I said. I am serious. Follow me. So how do we do that? In our passage today, he explains, well, he, I'm going to say he explains, but he explains how to do it. And here's how. We need to do, know, and build. Three things. You can hold on to those. Do, know, and build. The first thing Jesus wants us to do in following him is to do what he said. In verse uh, 21 and 24, he says, this person is is in the kingdom of heaven, the one who does, does the will of my Father. And in verse 24, whoever hears my words and actually does them, whoever hears and does them. So if we're going to ask the question, was Jesus serious? The answer is apparently he was. Apparently he wants us to actually do what he said and to not do what he said don't do. So go read what he actually said. And do the things he invites you to with generosity, forgiveness, surrendering. And don't do the things he says don't do. It's pretty simple. But it's not easy, right? A, a resume is that collection of things that you've done that you put um, when you're trying to get a job. And it's like, I worked here and I did this. I had this you know, job. I, I was in charge of these things. And the resume is that starting point for the person to give you an interview. And what they're trying to get at is, in a lot of ways in that interview, they want to know what you've done. Because what you have done in your past work is the best indicator of future performance, right? And Jesus is getting at this in a way. What you do is the best indicator of where your heart is. Our resume, 
of our life is indicating where our heart is, what we're building our life on, what we're actually following. And Jesus is saying, do the will of God my Father and do what I say. And that means this, to be a Christian is to follow Jesus wholeheartedly. It's to live in full obedience to him. It's not to say, I kind of like a little bit of Christian stuff, but on Friday nights, I like to do what I like to do and put Jesus back here. That when I get on my screen, that it's not my time. That my money is not my money. My vacation is not to be a time when Jesus is on vacation apart from me. Jesus is saying, if you're going to follow me, you need to do what I am inviting you to do, which is follow me all the time. It involves obedience, which is a word we don't like. But it's obedience to God, the one who created us, designed us, and has the full intentions of our best in this world. Jesus says, do the will of my Father. Well, what is the will of God the Father? Okay, so if you're going to follow God, if you're going to follow Jesus, you need to know him and know what he said, right? And so we need to know God, we need to know Jesus, and that's honestly why week in and week out we go back to the scriptures, because you and I know about Jesus because of the Bible. We know the nature of God, his saving acts, his purposes in scripture from Genesis to Revelation. We understand what God is about and what he wants to do in our lives through the Bible, and then we interpret the world in which we live in today. And then we live it. We do it. But the challenge of what Jesus said is good works are not enough. Apparently, we can do moral and good things, even spiritual things, but without a relationship with Jesus. He wants us to also know him. We read this in verse 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. They did all these amazing things. Lord, Lord, didn't we do these things? I never knew you. Depart from me. In his book, uh, What If Jesus Was Serious, Sky Jathani commenting on this said, despite their abundance of works in Jesus' name, the people that Jesus is talking about had no relationship with him. There was no intimacy, no genuine knowledge of or submission to his will. Jesus wants us to know him. I've known a guy named Paul for, I don't know, 30 years now. Um, Paul is married to Allie. He has a daughter named Eve. He's friends with guys Adam and Larry. I've known him for years. He's also a little bit of a poet. He wrote this one awesome poem that I love about um, streets without like road signs. He talked another one about this wonderful, amazing, beautiful day. Um, and he also is a, he's also a musician, and I've followed his music. I'm always listening to his music. And I've um, been in the room with him many times. And he's, the band that he leads is called U2, um, and Paul's other name is Bono. And I've known him for a long time. But even though I've been in the room with him, and I know all about him, and I follow him essentially religiously, I'm not known by Bono or anybody in U2. 
There's no relationship. Having a lot of head knowledge about, or even getting excited and following, doesn't mean that there's a relationship. The word know, when Jesus uses it, is born out of a Hebrew understanding of the word know, which meant intimate covenantal relationship. It was the way God the Father saw Israel as his children. And it was the way that sexual relationships were talked about within a marriage covenant. It is to know, to be naked and unashamed before. To know is to be all in, fully committed, as well as open and trusting. It's about relationship with Jesus. Being known by Jesus in that trusting, familial closeness is essential to belonging to the kingdom of heaven. So, to do the will of the Father is to follow and obey God's laws, God's commandments, God's ways, and God's will. And God's desire, his heart's desire, is that we be known by Jesus. Going to church, being good, giving money is not enough. Prophesying, casting out demons is not enough. We need a relationship with Jesus. And if you have that relationship with Jesus, that trusting and open, I'm yours, it is enough. And that means probably for some of us, we need to figure out what we're going to do with the swimming pool. You're not swimming if you're not actually in the water. Dipping your toe in the water means you're near a swimming pool. Holding on to the edge means you're getting a little more wet, but until you're out in the water, you're not swimming. And Jesus is saying, will you swim with me? Get in. Dipping your foot in is not swimming. Trust me. He wants that relationship. We're called to do, to know, but really to be known, and then to build our life on him. That's the third thing, to build our life on him. We build our life on him because he is the authority. We see this at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus finished the Sermon on the Mount, everyone is completely astonished. They've heard lots of sermons. Nobody was ever completely astonished after one of my sermons. I'm waiting. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as the scribes, not as the rabbis, not as the other religious teachers, not as the people who understood the scriptures. Every rabbi did what Jesus did. Did you know that? Every rabbi used parables. Jesus was not the only guy who used parables. They all had these great metaphors. They did storytelling, and they exegeted or translated the law and commands of God and tried to apply them to the people. That's all Jesus did. He did the same thing they did. And yet, Jesus does something different. He claims absolute authority. He says every person, he's talking to them, every person will be judged according to whether you obey me, whether you build your life on me or not. No rabbi would do that because only God could do that. 
We've talked about it here um, before, and we're going to talk about it again in the years to come, probably until I'm gone. Um, authority and identity. Authority and identity are the topics, the questions of our century. What does it mean to be human, and how do we know? What does it mean to be human, and how do we know? That question of how do we know, I use the word authority, and I don't mean like, you know, the principal is your authority, or if you're in the army, the general has authority over you. The authority is used in this way. It means the things on which we build our life. How do you know what's good or right or true? What are you founding it on? When you see something in the world and, and opportunities are there, how do you interpret them? It's, a, it's in a sense the lenses by which we view the world and interpret it. It's the thing on which we say, okay, this is the foundation on which I understand what's good and right and true and how I should live, and therefore understand my identity. My identity, according to the Bible, is not just something we figure out. But these are the questions is, who am I? All right, that's the identity question. Who am I? What defines me? What is the source of my meaning and hope? Why am I here? The Bible does make the claim God alone is the authority. And it's his word, okay, his word that reveals who he is and the truth about life and therefore who I am. This has implications for my beliefs, my worldview, my priorities, my aim, and especially my identity. I find myself in Christ not by looking out in the world or looking inside of myself. I find myself by knowing the God who made me and has called me. Authority and identity. We are all deciding stuff on that every single day. You're doing it whether you know it or not. And Jesus is saying, I'm the authority. Build your life, your identity on me. We get that very clearly in the most famous of his parables, if you would. Maybe it's not the most famous, but it's one of the most famous. This one at the very end where he talks about building your life on rocks, not sand. It's really easy. Anyone can understand it. Um, you've seen a flannel graph of it. You could probably sing a song about it. But Jesus says this, everyone who, does, who hears these words of mine and does them, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods, floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. The two houses, one built on rock, one built on sand. This is not about people who are Christians versus those who are not. Sky Jathani in his book puts it this way, the parable is about two houses that actually appear to be the same on the outside. The only difference is below the surface. Jesus is contrasting disciples, Christians, the genuine versus the false. What defines our life and destiny, according to this, is hidden from others, from the view of others. Jesus says it is the secret, hidden reality upon which we construct our identity that matters most. Think about that. 
I know some of you pretty well, and I can see your lives, but I don't know what's beneath the surface. And if you haven't taken the time to think about it, maybe you don't either. What Jesus wants us to do is to ask questions like this. What is God's will for my career? What is God's will for my family? My money? My politics? My relationships? To expose every part of what I value and care about and do to him and build it on him as best as I can. Of course, our kind of more modern response about like what is God's will is like, well, who can say? Who really knows? You do you. What makes you happy? Just do that. As long as you're not harming anybody, do what makes you happy. Jesus' reply to that would be, so what are you building your life on? Who's actually God in that instance? Jesus' warning is this, build your life in such a way that not getting what you want won't destroy you. Let me say that again. Jesus is saying, build your life in such a way that if you do not get what you want, it will not destroy you. If your dreams don't come true, if you fail, if your desires are not met, if you have loss, if your life is filled with struggle and pain, that you are not completely undone. Build your life on anything but Jesus, and the storms of life will prove to be stronger. Build your life on Jesus truly, and you can endure anything. The world is filled with Christians outside of the West who know this for real. Build your life on Jesus. Follow and obey him completely. In college, I lived in a house with a bunch of guys, and one of the guys that I met there um, was a guy with a lot of energy, and he liked to do things. And when he did things, he wanted people to do it with him. And so he had this common phrase um, that I found out later was he borrowed from other friends, and it's this, are you in or are you in? And so there was only one answer, right? Like, I'm in, I guess. And so it didn't matter whether it was going to get pizza at 11 o'clock at night or playing, you know, frisbee golf when it was 10 degrees out or just watching a movie in the middle of the day when I should have been studying. His are you in or are you in usually meant I was going to respond, I'm in. And then I would start yelling at other people, are you in or are you in? And then there were some lame guys in the house that would just kind of look at us and they didn't want to be in, but they missed out. Because if you were in, it was, well, we were in, I guess, I don't know. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is saying, are you in or are you in? But really, it's are you in or are you out? He's laying it pretty clearly. The Sermon on the Mount is a description of kingdom life. He has come to establish his eternal kingdom on this earth. And even now, it is unfolding, pushing back the works of darkness. But it involves disciples who don't win by destroying other people, but by dying. It's winning by losing. It's giving up your heart's desires and submitting them to God until they are conformed to God's desires. To be a disciple of Jesus 
to follow him, which is what he's saying, involves sacrifice. It involves the sacrifice of autonomy and desires. My independence or getting what I want necessarily do not usually line up with following Jesus. It involves the sacrifice of doing what you want and what you feel until, until, and this actually does happen, until you follow Jesus long enough that you desire what he wants more than what you would have wanted 10 years ago. It actually happens. Your desires are changed as you submit to and follow him and are conformed to the image of Christ more and more. What you thought you needed 20 years ago, you don't need anymore. And you realize the thing that you're living for now is so much more worth it. Filled with so much less shame and guilt and fear. So much more freedom and hope and peace. Your desires will change if you're following Jesus. But following Jesus will involve sacrifice. It will cost you. It will cost you friends and approval. It will cost you position sometimes, status, power. And to really follow Jesus may even cost you happiness. You might miss out on some things that look really fun on the surface. (laughs) Okay, so who's in now? I've been listening to an unfortunate podcast about the rise and fall of Mars Hill, a church in the Pacific Northwest. It's a fascinating and sad tale of a church that astronomically rose into thousands and thousands of people over the past 20 years and then plummeted into its depths. And in the most recent episode, they were talking about the fall of Christian leaders in particular and the fall from belief in Jesus, from Orthodox Christian faith. And at the, towards the end of this podcast the, a week ago, a guy who had written about all these celebrity ministers and pastors and other leaders who have fallen, fallen because of sin or literally just abandoned their faith, said, I don't believe this anymore. And he said this in a way that was, was pretty sad. Are there Christians left who are not going to fall away? Are there any Christians left who are not going to fall away? You know what? When I heard that, I thought, I wonder that too. It is possibly going to be harder and harder in the West to really follow Jesus. Easier and easier to conform Jesus to your own desires or to make him match up to the culture around you and say, I've got a version of Jesus that works. Maybe I'm pessimistic, or maybe this is just realistic. It is hard to follow Jesus. But I'm going to tell you, I can only talk about me. I'm in. Years ago, Jesus said, are you in? And I said, yes. And then years later, I followed him again to the next thing, and again to the next thing. And Jesus has shaped my beliefs, my worldview, He's changed and shaped what I do with my money, with my politics, with my body, how I view my kids, my aims and my identity. I'm giving them to him and I'm going to follow him. And following Jesus has cost me. 
It has cost me friends. People have left this church. I've hurt and offended people. Sometimes that's just because I'm a jerk. Um, And it will probably cost me more. But that's where I'm going. I want you to be in with me. But I can't decide for you. And if you move away, I want you to follow him there. If you go to another church, go follow him there. Do it well. I don't care if you follow me. Follow Jesus with me. But you've got to choose And here's the deal. Look, I've looked around. I'm not that old, but I've lived enough and seen enough to know this. The alternatives are not great. (laughs) Not only do I believe that this is true, but the alternatives are not great. And I believe that he does have the words of eternal life. In John chapter 6, the disciples started falling away. Many people who had followed Jesus decided what he was saying was too hard to believe and to follow. After this, it says in John 6, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, well, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. I want to follow Jesus. He has the words of eternal life. Who's in? Let's pray. Almighty God, and eternal God, so draw our hearts to you, so guide our minds, so fill our imaginations, so control our wills that we may be wholly yours, utterly dedicated to you, And then use us, we pray, as you will, and always to your glory and the welfare of your people. Through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.